0: Murder in the North. Episode 1 Kiss of Death. In the spring of 2009, two teenagers share a kiss at a party in Stockholm. A simple kiss that lasts no more than a few seconds. But it has fatal consequences. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases, and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Emil Nielsen and told by me, Jenna Sharp. It's a spring full of promise and a great deal of partying and flirting. On the 30th of April, bonfires are lit all over Sweden to celebrate Walpurgis Night. For 15-year-old Therese Johansson-Rojo, or Tess, as she's known to her friends, it's the first week of many parties, because she's due to graduate from high school in six weeks' time. And just a week later, she'll be celebrating her 16th birthday. Live life to the max, she writes in her blog. She began this blog a year ago during a family trip to the Philippines to see her father's relatives. Since then, she's been posting her drawings, writing brief updates on her dull school life, and waxing lyrical about Twilight, the film franchise about vampires and werewolves and their passionate love lives. And then, of course, there are the obligatory selfies that bear witness to the long time spent in front of the mirror with hair and makeup brushes. This is how she introduces herself in her blog My name is Therese, I'm 15, almost 16, and believe it or not, this is my uninteresting blog about my life as a perfectly normal teenager. But, Tess, won't live to see her 16th birthday. Nor will she finish school. And Walpurgis Night 2009 will be her last wild party. A big group of teenagers from the southern suburbs of Stockholm have gathered to celebrate. They can all have a lie-in the next morning, because May the 1st, the day after Walpurgis Night is a national holiday in Sweden. At some point during the evening, Tess and Tim get talking. She knows him by sight because they go to the same private school in Enskeda. Tim is 16 and one of the best looking guys at the school. They're both in high spirits. With her long dark tresses and big brown eyes, Tess looks absolutely captivating. Suddenly, Tess and Tim kiss but then a few seconds later, they stop, feeling self-conscious. This is a no-no. They quickly agree to keep it a secret and pretend it never happened. But Tess can't keep it to herself. It did just happen. She tells her friends, but nobody else is to know. It was an innocent kiss, that's all. For Tim, there's a lot more at stake. His girlfriend Tove, who also attends the same school, must certainly never find out. Tim and Tove have been together since they were 13 and 14. At school, they're seen as the absolute dream couple. Tim, the talented footballer with his huge circle of friends, and blonde Tove, the student who excels at everything she does. They've been together for two years, despite their fair share of arguments, breakups, and reconciliations. The first time, Tove had begged Tim to come back after he'd broken up with her and dated another girl for a short while. Six months later, it was Tove who left Tim, and it was his turn to win her back. He manages to persuade Tove, but from then on, there are new rules in their relationship. Tove has trust issues. It bothers her that Tim is always out with his mates. She complains that he spends too much time playing football and that he drinks too much. Jealousy is a constant companion in their relationship. Tove wants to know where Tim is, what he's doing and who he's seeing at all times. How else could she trust him? This leads to a spiral of distrust Promises, repeated declarations of love and non-stop monitoring, which puts their relationship to the test, time and time again. Maybe Tim has grown accustomed to the situation, but one thing's for certain, he's afraid to lose his girlfriend. On Walpurgis night, Tove is away with her parents, and so Tim heads to the party on his own. He knows that this, in itself, is enough to upset his girlfriend. He dreads to think how Tove might react if she were to find out that he's been unfaithful to her. He can only hope that Tess keeps her mouth shut. But word of the illicit Wulperger's kiss soon spreads. And a few weeks later, mid-May, it reaches Tove. It's the day after her 16th birthday. It's a late and unpleasant birthday surprise. At first, Tim tries to deny the kiss. He accuses Tove of believing rumors over him. She won't be convinced. And in the end, Tim has no choice but to confess. He apologizes and begs Tove for forgiveness. He says he'll do anything drop his friends, stop playing football, anything at all for her, Tove. But Tove takes no notice. She ignores his phone calls and text messages. Tim sends her another text message. My only goddamn reason for being is to be with you, he says. When Tove finally answers the phone, she gives him just 10 minutes of her time. Enough to give him the hope that if he can somehow convince her of his love, he can win her back. So he keeps writing to her. I'm begging you. If you just take me back, I promise you'll love me like you used to. I'll be there for you more than ever. I'm so miserable now that I don't know what I can do to make it up. I'd kill to win you back. And I mean it. I'd kill anyone for you. Anyone at all. But Tove doesn't respond. Several of Tove's friends confirm the rumours. Tim cheated on her during wolf night. He kissed Tess, that girl with the dark hair. Tove is feeling hurt and bitter when she goes into school the next day. She looks for Tim everywhere. His many declarations of love and fresh promises have done nothing to reduce her anger. When she finally tracks him down, she unexpectedly headbutts him, so hard that she chips one of Tim's teeth and blood comes gushing out of his nose. Tove walks away, away from school, away from Tim. He runs after her and catches up after a while. She's distraught and even threatens to throw herself in front of a train With some difficulty, he manages to calm her down until her parents come to collect her and take her home. Tove is adamant. That same evening, she texts to tell him it's over. She can't forgive him. But Tim insists on talking in person. She can't just say this in a message. She bombards him with insults calling him ugly, a disgusting loser, a scumbag. The correspondence is like a one-sided boxing match. Tove keeps bashing Tim while he's trying to stand his ground, searching for any tiny crack in her defence, only to be brutally knocked down again in every new message. Tim responds with hearts and kisses. He asks her to phone him whenever she likes. It doesn't matter how late as long as she calls him. Late at night, at a quarter past one, Tove actually does. But Tim doesn't answer his phone. She keeps trying, for 20 minutes, again and again. But no luck. After nearly half an hour, he finally responds to her latest text message. Tove unleashes another furious rant. He's a bloody liar, the biggest loser ever. It's over. She never wants to see him again. She hates him. But somehow or other, Tim manages to establish contact with Tove at night and actually talk on the phone. Successfully, it seems, because the next day they exchange texts about perfectly mundane things, all very friendly and polite. But in all likelihood, it was that night that they hatched a fateful plot. Perhaps it was in the five minutes after Tove issues her endless stream of insults and announces the end of their relationship that the idea of an ultimate declaration of love took shape. It's the only way Tim can convince Tove, incontrovertible proof that he means it when he says he'd do anything for her. A sacrifice has to be made And the most obvious victim is Tess. I just can't stand being three seats down from her in the metro. I want her dead. These are Tove's words to Tim, ten days after her headbutt in school and the nocturnal argument that followed. Tim replies to her. Consider it done today. The previous day, he spent several hours thinking about how he might satisfy Tove's demand. He had a look around Trongsund, the neighborhood where Tess lived, but that didn't help. He has no idea how to go about it. He only knows one thing. It has to happen if he doesn't want to lose Tove. By the evening, he has his plan ready. Tim plans to return to Trongsund and wait for Tess. He'll tell her that he's hidden a bottle of vodka in the woods near her house and ask her to help him retrieve it. He's sure that she'll say yes if he were to explain to her that he got the bottle from a bunch of guys he owes money to. If he manages to lure her into the woods, he'll look for a rock or a stick, something he can smash her skull with quick And easy. That evening he writes to Tove that he knows how he's going to do it. Tim is ready. He sets his alarm for six the following morning. He's standing by the side of the road near the woods when Tess leaves the house to catch the bus to school. As planned, Tim tells her the story of the vodka in the woods and owing cash and booze to some guys. Tess agrees to help and follows him. But they're stopped in their tracks. A girl from school calls after them to say that the bus is coming. Tim and Tess walk to the bus stop and take the bus to school together. Tess doesn't realize that the bus probably saved her life. She's just sad that she can't help Tim find the hidden vodka bottle. Turvey, on the other hand, is more than just sad. She's livid and she's out of patience. She's wondering whether Tim ever intended to keep his promise to her. I'm really struggling here, she writes. It doesn't feel like you're doing what I want you to do. I simply can't trust you. You know what to do this weekend. Tove and her family are going to Paris for the weekend. The last time she left the city with them, Tim cheated on her with Tess during Walpurgis night. That was a month ago. It's up to him now to prove that he understands what's at stake. If she's to get back with Tim, she wants Tess gone by the time she returns to Stockholm. In the meantime, Tove wants a complete lowdown on everything that Tim does. And so he dutifully sends updates to Paris, so as not to arouse any suspicion. But Tove is suspicious. She wouldn't be surprised if he just sat at home with his family all day. She's also annoyed by the sheer number of his messages, she writes. With the weekend almost over, Tove's deadline is fast approaching and Tim still hasn't delivered on his promise. He asks for understanding and floats the idea of proving to Tove in some other way how much she means to him. She simply responds by asking, Have you done it? I haven't had a chance yet. I'm going to try tomorrow after school. Please don't be angry with me for not doing it yet. I'll be furious if you haven't done it by the time I get home. But I wouldn't be surprised. You never do what you say, is the answer from Paris. Tim begs her and tries to appease her while Tove by turns taunts, goads, and insults him. Can't we at least be friends until I do it, he asks. To which Tove answers, until you've actually done it, there's nothing between us. In the end, Tim assures her that he'll get it done before the graduation party. That won't be for another two weeks, but the days go by quickly. Tess is excited about the upcoming graduation party. She's found the perfect pair of shoes to go with a gold-colored party dress she's bought. Only four more days to go. It's June. May has seen some sunshine, but the Saturday before the graduation ceremony is a cloudy day. Still, that doesn't stop Tess from arranging to meet her friends on the former ski slope in Sturraby. Lots of young people from the area have gathered here for a party in the open air. An older mate of one of Tess's friends has obtained a packet of cigarettes and a bottle of vodka for the girls. Tess's friends tease her a bit, Because she's turned up in her new high heels. Not exactly the most practical shoes for a former ski slope in the middle of a forest. Everybody is here this Saturday in Sturaby. Summer's just around the corner, as are the school holidays. And there's a sense of freedom in the air. If she's there, I'll do it this evening. If not, I'll figure out where she is. See you later, kiss. Tim writes to Tove before he heads to the party. Tove may go to the party later. She's already made plans with the boy she occasionally sees behind Tim's back. The Swedish national football team is playing, and they want to watch the match together. Afterwards, some of his friends will testify that Tim wasn't himself that evening. He's unusually quiet and strangely absent at the party. Later that night, he bumps into Tess. By then, it's 11 o'clock, and as darkness falls, the party slowly reaches its climax for the drunk teenagers. It's almost impossible to have a decent conversation amidst all the noise, and so Tess and Tim walk towards the forest. Seeing her walk away, One of Tess's friends thinks that she'll be fine as long as she's with Tim. And she is. A moment later, Tess is back with her friends, and Tim is with one of his mates when Tove turns up at the party. The football match is finished, with Sweden losing 1-0 to Denmark. So as not to arouse any suspicion, Tove encouraged the boy she'd been with to go to the party first. She then followed with a girlfriend. Tove can't stay long. Her parents want her home by midnight. But she and Tim bump into each other and have a brief chat before she leaves the party. From then on, Tove and Tim will each have their own accounts of what they talked about at the ski slope party. Tove is on her way home, when a message from Tim pops up on her mobile. I'll text you when it's done, he writes. Tess is going home with a girlfriend whose parents are picking her up at midnight. She says goodbye to her group of mates and walks along the edge of the forest towards the car park. I'll be right there, she writes to her friend just before 12. She needs a wee and goes in search of a discreet little spot among the trees. She doesn't notice Tim until he overtakes her in the forest. He strikes up a conversation about Wilpurgis night, and the kiss, and why so many people know about it. You'd promised to keep it to yourself, remember? You agreed it shouldn't have happened. In her high heels, Tess is struggling to keep her balance on the uneven forest floor. She sits down on a rock and admits to Tim that she'd confided in her friends and didn't think they'd tell anyone. Tim realises that Tess doesn't seem to understand the gravity of the situation. It's as if she doesn't regret the kiss as much as he does. Quite the opposite, in fact. Tim spots a broken branch. He slips behind Tess, picks it up and swings with all his might. The branch snaps when it hits the back of her head. Hundreds of rotten splinters rain down on Tess and get stuck in her long hair. Tess screams, Bloody hell, what are you doing? What did I ever do to you? For Tim, there's no way back now. He throws himself on top of her and grabs her neck with both hands, Tess tries to free herself from his grip, but Tim is bigger and stronger. He squeezes as hard as he can for several minutes, until Tess drops lifeless to the forest floor. To make sure that Tess is really dead, Tim picks up another branch and presses it against her throat. When the branch snaps, he kneels on her neck with all his weight. Several minutes pass... Then he gets to his feet, and just when he's about to leave, he thinks he hears a faint moan. He kicks her body and her head, repeatedly, with all his might. He kicks harder than he's ever done, again and again. It's over. Tim runs off through the dark forest, leaving Tess for dead. It's done. She's dead. I did it, he writes to Tove as he walks home. At the party, Tess's friends wonder what's keeping her. They call her name and search the edge of the forest. Somebody decides to phone Tess's parents in case she's gone home by herself. Without hesitation, her mother jumps into her car and drives to Sturby, where friends and other partygoers continue to look for Tess and keep calling her name in the dark. When her mother arrives at the ski slope, she spots the blue lights from the police cars and ambulance. About an hour after she texted her friends that she was on her way, Tess is found in the forest. One of her friends thinks she must have tripped and fallen, while another is initially more concerned about what Tess's mother is going to say when she finds the remaining cigarettes and half-empty bottle of vodka in her daughter's bag. When Tess is discovered, she's lying motionless on her back. Her skin is bluish and her pulse weak. She's unconscious and only barely alive. Soon, The news reaches Tim. He has just arrived home and phones Tove. Now what? If Tess is still alive, what is she going to tell the police? Tim panics, but Tove calms him down. She promises to meet up with him the next day to talk things through. Tess's mother can only watch as the paramedics fight to save her daughter's life. When the ambulance drives off with Tess, she fearfully follows them to the hospital. 10 minutes after she arrives, the doctors are forced to give up. Tess is too far gone. She dies. The police soon realize that the girl is a victim of a crime and officers start questioning the young people at the scene. Several of them touch on the rumor of the illicit kiss during Walpurgis night and mention Tim and Tove. The next day at six o'clock on Sunday morning, the police turn up at their doors and both are taken to the station. Tim attends the first round of questioning with his mother. The parish district also sends a representative to be at the interview because Tim's a minor. The police tell Tim straight away that he suspected of murdering Tess. He strongly denies it. He says he was at the party and spoke to Tess, but claims to have left around midnight like most of the others. That's why he has no idea what happened in the forest. That day, detectives gather more evidence before they question Tim again in the evening, this time with a solicitor present. The officers don't stop at asking questions now. They confront Tim with more witness statements and evidence that identifies him as the perpetrator. Although Tim sticks to his earlier account, the facade is slowly starting to crumble. After a while, he asks to speak to a pastor, which the police allow. This conversation changes everything because Tim now agrees to make a statement. With the pastor by his side, He confesses to the police. He talks them through every single step, about the kiss during Walpurgis night, about Tove's anger, and finally, about her ultimatum, about his love for Tove and his struggle to win her back. Tim talks about the many hours he spent in Tess's neighborhood, trying to come up with a plan He explains that his first attempt failed because the bus pulled up as he tried to lure Tess into the woods with the lie about the hidden vodka bottle. And lastly, he describes what happened after the party on Saturday evening in the forest behind the ski slope. Why did you kill Tess? The detectives ask him. So as not to lose Tove, Tim explains. It was the only way he could keep her happy. Tove denies putting Tim up to anything, even when the officers confront her with 115 chats and 697 phone calls and text messages between her and Tim. The many messages that the detectives print out and put before her reveal in minute detail how the idea to murder Tess took shape. Despite the evidence, Tove continues to deny any involvement It was never meant to be taken seriously, she says. If Tim murdered Tess in the forest, he should be held accountable, not her, she stresses. The public prosecutor begs to differ. Both Tim and Tove are officially charged with the murder of Therese Johansson Rojo, better known as Tess. Because the suspects are so young, The court determines that the case is to be held behind closed doors. The trial opens at Soderton District Court on the 19th of August, 2009. In court, Tim admits to murdering Tess, while Tove maintains her innocence. That's why, in the course of the trial, her lawyer will do everything possible to undermine Tim's testimony and make Tove's account more plausible. It's the version in which Tove claims that she didn't mean it when she texted, that she wanted Tess dead and that Tim had to kill her, and that she never imagined Tim reading it any other way. Tim is the first to be cross-examined, but after only a few minutes, he suffers a panic attack and collapses in the courtroom. An ambulance takes him to hospital, and from there back to the young offender institution where he is being held under the care of psychiatrists and social workers. The trial is halted and won't resume until the following week. Tove is now forced to admit that she wrote the many messages to Tim that the public prosecutor presents in court, but she maintains that they weren't meant to be taken seriously. Nonetheless, the court concludes that Tove is just as guilty of Tess's death as Tim is. It's unlikely that he would have committed the crime if Tove hadn't spurred him on. She should have at least recognized the foreseeable risk of Tim taking her request seriously, whether she meant it or not. The judge finds both Tim and Tove guilty of the manslaughter of Therese Johansson Rojo in September 2009, some four months after that fateful Wolpurgus night. Before the judge can impose a sentence, the two young people have to undergo psychiatric evaluation. The psychiatrist's report is published at the end of October. It holds both fully accountable for their actions so they can be sentenced under the Juvenile Offenders Act. They are each given a year and eight months in a young offender institution. They are also ordered to pay Tess's parents 60,000 Swedish krona around 5,000 pounds. Whereas Tim accepts the verdict, Tove appeals, hoping to be acquitted. The public prosecutor appeals to demand longer sentences. The Court of Appeal, however, upholds the ruling and it becomes final in February 2010. By then, Tess has long been buried. She was laid to rest in a white coffin Surrounded by a sea of flowers And to the soundtrack of the Twilight films Her family and many friends Said goodbye to Tess The girl who'd been determined To live life to the max From Podimo, This is Murder in the North